This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, Blair, um, probably one of the scariest words pretty much for anybody who goes about in the world paying for things and, and having, uh, you know, bringing stuff home after you've gone shopping would be um, bankruptcy. Being yeah. told you can't do that anymore or whatever you have been doing, you can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. How does bankruptcy work today? How does bankruptcy work in 2017? Yeah, you know, it, it's a word. It, it lands like a, a thousand pound weight, right? There's so much emotion, so many connotations to the word of bankruptcy. And, you know, quite often bankruptcy is, is not what you think. You know, most of the time people think, well, bankruptcy is the end of the road. It's the end of life. It's the end of the line for me. I'll but, never be able to show my face again. That's what I think. Yeah. People think it's a public admission of failure, for yes, example. Absolutely. In general, almost to a person, it's completely the opposite. It's a means of rebirth. It's a means of starting over. It's a fresh start. The words in the actual law are it's a fresh start for the honest but unfortunate debtor. So Hmm. Canadian Parliament have said if you've been honest but you've been unfortunate and you find yourself burdened by way too much debt – Bankruptcy is your means to start again. It's actually a wonderful thing. If you're a corporation and you go into bankruptcy, that's the end of the line. Everything is sold off. You don't emerge typically. If you're an individual, you emerge, you have all your faculties about you, and in general, it's not as intrusive, as hard, um, as you know, demeaning perhaps, as some people might think. Uh, it, it's actually a very standard legal process. It happens almost 100,000 times a year in Canada, almost 500 times a month in BC. Wow. 500 times a month. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Without a doubt, Elaine, someone in your life, people in my life, it's about 10% of the population on a grand scheme of things will eventually have to do either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. It touches every walk of life. Okay. So I've come to you. I've said, Blair, I need your help. Um, I can't manage anything financial in my life right now, what do you do? Where do you start? Well, the, the first thing is just taking stock of the entire situation. So let's figure out how bad is the situation and you know what, what can be done to fix it. If it's a case, okay, well, you can't afford anything because your rent is way too high. Well, bankruptcy is not going to help you with, with lowering your rent, for example. Okay. If you can't afford anything because... Canada Revenue Agency or student loans are taking a half or third of every paycheck because you've got an unpaid student loan or tax debt. Okay, that's something bankruptcy can help with. So part of bankruptcy is making sure that before you go through a process, you're in a situation where on a monthly basis, on your reasonable necessities of life, you can handle those. You've restructured yourself that your budget's okay, but you've got this massive amount of debt that you just can't handle both. You can't afford to live and pay your debts. That's when you would need the help of a bankruptcy. And they're big and they're big debts and they're big companies that are wanting my money, whether it be a credit card, so a bank or banks. Um, and I don't know, it could be my utilities as well, right? I, mm-hmm. I'm behind on hydro. I'm behind on my telephone. I'm behind on all of those things that I need. So how do you go about? Um, so you, so we lay out everything. Mm-hmm. This is what I owe. This yep. is what I can't manage 
damage any more than what. So in order to go into a bankruptcy, essentially that the price of admission is you have to legitimately not be able to pay your debts. So when we sit down for initial consultation, we're figuring out a bunch of uh, big questions. So first off, what does the person own? So for most people that come in to see us, um, they've got very little. You know, maybe they have real estate, but if they do, it's usually mortgaged right up to, you know, 90, 95% or whatever. Maybe the reason they're coming to see us is because they put the down payment on credit cards and now they've got way more house than they can afford. But we look at all of their assets and we figure out, okay, if the person were to go into bankruptcy, what would happen to those assets? Most of the time, people think they lose everything, but the average person keeps absolutely everything if they go into bankruptcy. So first off, yeah, so if someone walks in and they, they've got a car, they tell me about the car and they think, but you're going to take that car if I go bankrupt. Well, not necessarily. So the government puts out certain exemptions. And if a car is worth less than $5,000 and you file for bankruptcy, doesn't matter what your debts are, you keep that car. You don't pay anything extra, you just keep it. Okay. For the most part, people have financed a car. And as we all generally know, if you finance a car, the car depreciates way more quickly than you're financing. So, you know, you owe more than what the car is worth. Almost for the entire time of, of your loan, um, in that situation, that's not really an asset you would lose in bankruptcy. You would just continue to make payments on the car. What's a huge one, Elaine, and if people remember nothing else about assets in bankruptcy, is RRSPs. So it breaks my heart that people don't know that if you've got a bunch of RRSPs and you have a bunch of debts, you could cash in those RRSPs to pay your debts, but you don't have to. Nobody can force you to cash in your RRSPs. And even if you go into a bankruptcy where theoretically you're surrendering certain assets, whatever you have in your RRSPs, that's yours. You don't have to surrender that. That's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought that at all. I would have thought that would have been the first thing to go. Right. And up until 2009, it was. So it was incredibly unfair that if somebody had a company pension plan, they went into bankruptcy. You've never lost your pension in bankruptcy. But a private pension plan like an RRSP, you would have lost since 2009, the government said, okay, let's fix that injustice. But still, I see people coming through the door who were trying to do the right thing, but have really compromised their future retirement by cashing in their RRSPs. So part of the first meeting is looking at all the assets that a person holds and saying, what's at risk? What's not? What's going to happen? And anybody that files for bankruptcy, you don't do it the day you walk into the office. We're going to meet at least three times. We're going to answer every question. We're going to make sure you've got a good sense of how this is going to finish before we ever start. Hmm. Interesting. What about uh, when you're uh, bankruptcy affects so many people, not just the individuals, but all the individuals in my life as well. Mm -hmm. How do you guys help the person deal with that? Well, part of the bankruptcy, you know, financial is a piece of it, but, you know, financial problems are often one piece of a broader um, sense series of issues that are going on. Mm -hmm. So the top causes that send people through the door are job loss. You know, their relationship breakdown, uh, it's illness. So there's a bunch of different factors that are really shocks to a family. We can fix the financial point of view. And part of bankruptcy is you have to attend two counseling sessions. So bankruptcy is not a case where it's, you know, an easy in and out. You're cleansed of your debt and nothing changes inside. You sit down with a counselor for two in-depth sessions talking about budgeting, about credit rebuilding. And what we try to do at those sessions, too, is also to identify, are there other resources that are necessary? Are there other 
connections we need to help you make with some support networks. For example, we see a lot of clients near our Richmond office who unfortunately spend um, time and money at the casino to to their detriment. They'd be the first to say it. So often a lot of those clients, part of the counseling is connecting them to doing a self-exclusion, to getting some specific gambling counseling. It's not often these things are at no cost, but you just need to know how to access the resources. How to access them. So what if I'm working? What if I've got a job and I'm getting wages and I have to declare bankruptcy? Mm -hmm. What happens to that money? Yeah, so the vast majority of people that that go through a, a bankruptcy, they are working. Right, So they've got money that's coming in e- each month. And what happens in a bankruptcy is you're not bankrupt for six, seven years or anything like that, like most people think. You're bankrupt usually for nine months, sometimes for a year and nine months or 21 months. What makes a difference is your income level. So if you come into us and you're not working or you're earning minimal wages, which the government says the poverty line for a single person is around $2,100 per month after tax. Mm -hmm. So if you come in and see us and you're earning less than roughly $2,100 a month, bankruptcy runs for nine months. You have to report your income for each of those nine months. And what you have to pay is a flat rate of $200 per month. So instead of paying any of the debts that are included in the bankruptcy, you still pay your rent and your hydro and things like that. um, But you pay the cost of the bankruptcy at $200 a month for nine months. And then you're finished. You're discharged. No matter how much the debt was, the average person, it's around $40,000. It could be $140,000. It could be a million dollars. It's all discharged at the end of a nine-month bankruptcy, provided there's not other factors that play any fraud or things like that, which are very minimal. Okay. Uh, just a final question, and, and this will be the last one for this segment. Uh, how, do, how do I file taxes for the year of bankruptcy? And I, I think mm-hmm. this is where you guys really play a significant role, because yeah. you know how to do this stuff. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the, the, the greater benefits of bankruptcy that nobody thinks about, is we do your taxes. So for the year you file for bankruptcy... Oh, interesting. Okay. I didn't yeah. expect that to be the answer. Oh, yeah. Save the H&R block fee or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, we have to do the taxes, as, as basically see. by law. And what's great about that, too, is if you're a few years delinquent or even more than a few years, which sometimes happens, bankruptcy gets you back on the grid because the trustee has to get you caught up. So you have to give us all the info, but it's not the case. Give it to your accountant, spend thousands of dollars. As part of the bankruptcy administration, we help you get caught up with taxes back in the good books with CRA. Wow. So And that's even the back taxes. That's even for years previous. Exactly. Because there are people who don't pay their taxes on a regular basis. No. Which, which (laughs) to me, I just, oh my gosh, I can't imagine not doing that each year. But- there's lots of folks who don't. Oh, yeah. And, and definitely, Elaine, in future segments, we'll talk about self-employment and all the things you need to consider. But it's a huge part of our practice is people that are self-employed that, you know, know they have the tax bill coming and think they're going to be able to pay it. And then something happens and the government doesn't want to wait for their money. So they need some help. Great. You're listening to Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. The show is called Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin. Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 to find an office near you. Chef Helena is on the line with us. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Now, this is a show all about dollars and cents. Uh, Blair, 
food budgets and how to manage food budgets, I understand that Helena's probably pretty good at that. Yeah, definitely. So I've known Chef Helena for a, a number of years, and she actually teaches a course um, where it's how to reduce your food costs by 30%. Wow. Yeah. So she's going to have some very useful um, information for us today. And definitely what I see day to day with my clients is when I ask them to, to set out a budget, they sit there and they kind of tap the pen on the food the food item there, but no one really knows where to start, what's a good benchmark, and even how much they're spending. So I think it's a key budget area where if we can give some good tools, um, that'll be a good use for today. Okay, let's start. Where do we start, Helena, looking at that? My goodness. You know, I think the biggest mistake that people make with allocating their food budget is just a lot of different things. One thing is they really should know how to use flyers because they're such a key thing to, you know, to have in your arsenal and to, uh, to know how to manage flyers as well because everything eventually goes on sale. Another great thing is to use, uh, use your pantry and to make a grocery list. It's really important. Mm-hmm. People, uh, people tend to just go in starving and just grab everything off of the shelf. Uh, another thing is to shop seasonally. And because we live in such a beautiful city, uh, just the fresh fruits and vegetables that we can get in seasonally, are, it's always a better value to get something that's seasonal. Now, people just don't set a budget. And mm-hmm. people don't know the difference between a want and a need. So a need is, I need milk. A want is truffle oil would be nice to have on my <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, truffle oil. Big difference in price as well, I understand. Yeah, big difference. And right now, I mean, if you're, if you're looking at sort of ballpark groceries for, you know, a family of four, it's kind of difficult to determine because it's all determined by income, location. If you have special needs, if someone has celiac disease or diabetes or kidney disease, So some of those need to come into play. If you take a look right now, and if you've gone grocery shopping just in the last two weeks, you'll notice that we have cauliflower that's astronomically priced and uh, stuff like romaine, really, really expensive. And that's because things are transitioning between Mexico and California, and we're finally getting our local items in. So if you notice, when you go to the grocery store, things like cucumbers, and tomatoes, which are hothouse products, which are produced locally here, the prices are still pretty reasonable. So it's really hard to determine what to spend per person uh, or for a family of four at this time because there's so many variables. Mm. And right now, this month is really not a great month to do budgeting because of just the price influx of everything. And, And the price of gas also has something to do with uh, the price of our groceries as well. Yes, Chef Elena, I see, I see my clients, you know, they speak a lot about food inflation in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, have you seen that, that as well? Like to to yeah. an extent, a lot of, it seems like it's the more healthy stuff, unfortunately, is, is what's getting more expensive. Well, you know what? You really need to know how to shop your grocery store. And using those flyers is such a key thing to do. I mean, I think my top three tips for doing your budgeting is number one, use the flyers. Number two is probably not to be brand loyal because... Everything goes on sale in about a six-week cycle. Don't tell anyone that, but everything will go on sale eventually. So, you know, I mean, head lettuce this week. Now, I mean, I did a price match from one store to another, and one of the stores that I normally shop at was $4, and I did a price match to another store for $0.99. Cents. Well, wow. you know, big difference in price. Uh, and when you're not necessarily brand loyal, and let's say you use a store brand, I don't know if anyone knows this or if everyone knows this, but... All store brands are 100% money-back guarantees. So if you don't like it, there's no fuss. You can just take it back to the store, and they'll, they'll return your money for you. 
That's fascinating. I had no idea that uh, yeah, that... Pretty, pretty neat. So, um, you know, I'm really big on using the flyers. It's something my mom taught me. So every week I sit down with all the flyers and I, I always make a list of what we need in the family or what I need for catering or for cooking classes. Uh, and then what I do after is I take a look at the flyers and I say, okay, well, you know what? Cucumbers are on sale here. Broccoli's on sale here. And I will write down a simple grocery list. I try to stick to that grocery list pretty closely. Now, have you got any tips for a a single person? Because I find that that's one of the hardest things to transition to. If you've always always been making meals or looking after a household full of people, and all of a sudden you're sitting there with you and maybe one other person, uh, are there some tips to follow or some guidelines to follow for that? Well, you know what? I mean, number one thing is actually get out there and start cooking. Take a cooking class. I I offer a cooking class uh, called How to Reduce Your Food Cost by 30%, which is going to be starting up at Langara, which is June 6th um, 6th and and June 13th. And that's a great way to sort of learn how to lower your food costing and cook at home. Uh, Get that practice. People tend to forget that you can customize things when you're cooking at home and you can... Just because you make a roast beef for four people and there's only two people at home, so use that leftovers to make, you know, beef dips with or uh, beef pot pie. So utilize your leftovers. When you throw your leftovers in the garbage, you're just throwing money straight in the garbage. And let's say you make a roast beef for four people, and once again, there's only two, put half of it in the freezer. So then you've got a quick meal ready to go for a weeknight uh, when you need something that's quick and easy. You've been in the uh, in our community, in the Lower Mainland community, for 28 years. Yeah. Um, what, have you got some great places that we should certainly not tell anyone else about, uh, but to visit, to take advantage of? You know, there's a lot of great places. I'm going to put a quick little plug in for me, but uh, we sell spices at our catering company at a great value. So uh, large quantities, great budget-friendly prices for spices. So that's a great place to shop for spices. For veggies, I shop at Persia Foods a lot. Mm. Look around. I've got a, I go to a place called Produce Marketplace. It's at 47th and Fraser. They're really fantastic. Santa Barbara is great. And Killarney Market is epic for grocery shopping. So you can go to those fancier markets and see what you want there. And then you go to Killarney Market and you can purchase it there. Usually probably about 10 to 30% less. So it's a great place to go shop. That's significant, too. That's a significant savings. Yeah. I mean, if you can, every dollar that you can save, you know, you can spend on something like fantastic cheese or a great bottle of champagne instead. <laughs> <laughs> what a good idea that is. Uh, Grayson's Car- uh, Catering is uh, is your website, Helena. Grayson's catering.com. There was also a note here about something that you have a specialty within your catering company with uh, all to do with turkey dinners. Do you want to talk about that for a moment? Yes, we do turkey dinners for 10 people for $275 delivered any time of year, uh, fully cooked, ready to go. All you need to do is take the saran wrap off and throw away the takeout containers and claim it as your own. It's uh, something really wonderful we've been doing for about 15 years. I also do a lot of cooking classes. So I do cooking classes at Eden West, uh, which is in Port Moody, and I do most of the cooking classes at Langara. So I'm 
probably do about 85% of the cooking classes there. We have one coming up called 15-Minute Meals, which is great. Dinner for two when you need dinner on the table in under 15 minutes. That's starting up the, um, on Wednesday, June the 7th. We also have one-pot meals starting up on Thursday, June the 8th. And I also have another cooking class, which is starting up tomorrow. Uh, so next Tuesday, probably Tuesday, which is an artisanal bread class. And what if I'm a real rookie? Rookie. ABCs of cooking, hands down. So I will give you this insider's tip. It is the cheapest place to come for cooking classes. If you come to Langara, and it's langara.bc.ca, and take a look at our ABCs of cooking. We've been written up in the Georgia Strait uh, for the cooking class. Uh, we've been on uh, TV for this particular cooking class. You learn everything, the basics, from learning how to boil water all the way up to making pie crust. And when people come to that class, all you need to do is bring two hands and a willingness to and willingness to eat some great food. And Helena, I can definitely vouch for the, the quality of your classes. It was ten years ago. That's how I made your acquaintance. Was with one of your very basic beginner courses, and I've still taken a lot of skills from that to this day. So thank yeah, you I'm very glad much. That you're using them. <laughs> yes, that's great. <laughs> Indeed. We've been talking with uh, Chef Helena. Graysonscatering.com is her website. If you'd like more information, uh, and Sands and Associates, of course, you're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Mant and I'm Elaine Scollin. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Sands and Associates, experts in getting and helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we've talked about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 to find an office near you. On the line with us now is Frida Tromans. Uh, Frida is a lawyer, called to the bar in, uh, back in the year 2000. She's one of two principals at Peninsula Law Group, which is a boutique law firm in South Surrey. Her current practice focuses on family law and estate litigation. That's what we're going to talk about. Welcome, Frida. Thank you. Yeah, Frida, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Frida, we've seen a, a lot of changes definitely with the clients that have come through our doors. A lot of them in recent years more so are having matrimonial disputes. And I know the law has actually changed uh, with respect to relationships. Could you give us a sense of the new BC Family Law Act? I think it was, what, two or three years ago things have changed, but I think it's now we're starting to see the effect of that. Uh, it's a good question, Blair. Uh, the Family Law Act actually was a, a sea change uh, in the law in some respects as compared to the Family Relations Act, which uh, preceded it. Uh, that's the provincial legislation that governs uh, family law issues. Uh, and you're right, it was about uh, four years now, actually, that it's been in force. Um, and it's working through the courts, and, and we haven't dealt with all of the new provisions. But uh, for the purpose of, of this uh, issue and this, uh, today's uh, session, I, I did want to focus on the key changes that probably affect some of your clients, uh, in particular, uh, common law spouses. That's, that's the most obvious. Uh, they're now captured by the whole of the Act. Uh, in other words, uh, a spouse who uh, resides with someone in a marriage-like relationship and has done so for a period of two years, or 
has a child with that person. So it can be less than two years, but they have a child together. They're considered a common law spouse, and they are now uh, uh, subject to uh, the property and debt division provisions of the Act, whereas before, uh, they wouldn't have been captured by that. Right. And, and Frida, I remember that, that language from the law, and I remember just kind of furrowing my brow about what is a marriage-like relationship? Because I know the, the layman or, or the, the average person would think, well, if I'm not cohabitating with somebody for two years, I'm probably not going to be classed as common law and have to consider assets and debts. But um, what's, the, what's the more of the parameters around a marriage-like relationship? Uh, that is a uh, question, a factual uh, question, which is common in family law, Blair. And so uh, it, it, it's the indicia of a marriage-like relationship includes, and, and I say includes because it really depends on the whole of circumstances for the, the parties, but it includes uh, do they live in the same house? Do they share financial obligations, uh, financial assets? Or, you know, Are they joint on bank accounts? Do they have the mortgage together? That sort of thing. Do they hold themselves out as a couple? Do they go to each other's uh, Christmas, you know, employment Christmas parties? Do they, you know, go to the family uh, uh, gatherings, etc.? Do, you know, are they attending at the children's school together? Uh, and again, I, I, I caution you, though, the latter point would be they would be considered common law in any event because they have children together. But those are some of the examples of what would constitute a marriage-like relationship. Uh, and again, it's looking at the whole of the relationship because some folks are in a marriage-like relationship and don't uh, share financial uh, uh, obligations. Some do. Some married folks don't share financial obligations. So there's no uh, cut and dry, uh, 100% definition. The courts have con- uh, considered a number of factors uh, in determining a marriage-like relationship. And what about the property and debt part of it, when you were talking uh, originally, Frida, about it, that it's now, that, that is now being encompassed under the new, under the new Family Law Act? How's that, how does that impact somebody? Well, uh, particularly for common law spouses, they are as though they were a married spouse. They're, they are, they have the same, as I said, obligations and uh, the same rights. And so, For example, I mean, family property in the Family Law Act is defined as property owned by at least one spouse uh, or that at least one spouse has a beneficial interest in at the date the spouses separate. So at the time of separation, what do you own? If you own, if it doesn't matter if it's in both parties' name or in one party's name, that is considered family property, at least on the face of it. And after separation, indeed, uh, if at least one spouse acquires new property uh, derived from what was previously family property, that too can uh, fall under the category of family property. Uh, Now, that definition is subject to uh, a new regime called an excluded property regime. Uh, It's long. Uh, I won't get into all the details, can't in the time we have, but that includes property which was owned by one spouse, one or both spouses, before the relationship began, 
or, for example, an inheritance from a third party or a gift to one of the spouses. But again, those that's a really general response, and, and there's a lot more detail to sure. what we define as excluded. And family debt. Yeah, um, let's talk about the family debt piece. Uh, just that is, that's really new, Elaine, because uh, family debt wasn't even defined in the Family Relations Act. So uh, that's new for both married and common law spouses. And, and it's defined in the Act as all financial obligations incurred by a spouse during the relationship. It doesn't matter in whose name that debt is, so long as it was incurred during the relationship or after separation uh, if a debt is incurred for the purpose of maintaining family property. Okay, so there's a, there's a reason for the debt uh, in order for it to, to uh, fall under the definition of family debt after separation. But during the relationship, if one of those two spouses uh, incurs a debt, uh, that on the face of it is a family debt. And when I keep saying on the face of it, I mean there are provisions in the Act that allow for parties to argue, gee, this would be really unfair for me to have this debt incurred during our relationship for these particular reasons. But those are difficult arguments to make. Uh, And so you have to assume, as I said, coming out of the relationship, if there's a debt incurred by one during the relationship, it's both parties' debts. Now, being the fact that you were called to the bar back in 2000, you've seen and heard all kinds of different uh, cases. Why why did it take so long for debt to be be put under that umbrella with the the family law? Act. Like, what took them so long? Well, <laughs> I think you'd have to ask the legislature and the government of, of the, the time that. But I can say, look, it, really what's happened is we've codified what was in the common law. Because the legislation doesn't take away, if you will, from the role of courts and the role of law being made through the courts. It's interpreting the legislation, and in interpreting the legislation, the former legislation, debts were part and parcel, if you will, of decisions being made about how parties were dividing assets, etc. So uh, the fact is, uh, the legislation now uh, makes it easier and clearer. And so there's no question now as to whether this debt falls under the whole family law regime. Uh, it is indeed defined now and helps parties uh, move forward. And the fact is, we have a lot of self-represented litigants out there. In my view, uh, having legislation available that's clear or clearer helps folks to guide themselves through what the potential outcome will be. Oh, cool. So it's it's a good thing in the long run that it finally that it's finally down sort of in black and white. So the average person knows exactly where they stand. Yes. Well, <laughs> yes, to an extent. Uh, unfortunately, it is still um, a, a bit of a quagmire only because, you know, uh, the law is open to interpretation, how, how the language is uh, set out. It's, it's clearly defined, but how we then interpret it, you know, things like subject to another order or, you know, uh, an, an unfairness argument uh, gives some discretion, which is important, mind you, because everybody's facts are different. Uh, some discretion to the courts to uh, um, uh, make decisions uh, based upon a person's specific circumstances, which is why it makes it a little difficult to know with certainty and, and uh, what the future would hold uh, once a certain a person's circumstances are brought before court, for example, and how it would be interpreted. It helps. It makes things more defined, but it's not absolute. Got it. 
And, and Frida, I'm wondering, you know, with uh, all the changes in the law and obviously complexity and, and or maybe some simplification in, in some matters here, um, you know, the terms prenuptial agreement or cohabitation agreement, I see them occasionally with clients of mine. And usually it's someone's coming into a relationship and they've got an asset and they, they need to protect it. Um, mm-hmm. Can you give us a sense for our listeners? You know, what do the terms mean, a prenuptial or a cohabitation agreement? Where does it make sense um, to, to look at that? And at what point in the relationship does it make sense? Obviously, right before you're here about to separate, is too late. Uh, okay, well, prenuptial and cohabitation agreements, so those terms are essentially uh, have the same function. Uh, the prenuptial agreement is called prenuptial uh, because it's one that presumes marriage will occur, whereas a cohabitation agreement is about cohabiting. Uh, however, the latter, the cohabitation agreement, can revert into a marriage agreement or prenuptial agreement if it says so. I mean, you can you can put terms into agreement that says, you know, this is a cohabitation agreement. If we ever marry, it will become a marriage agreement or, uh, for the purpose of the Family Law Act, and you would probably uh, refer to that act. Uh, now, the purpose, of course, is to, again, make clear what's going to happen in the event the relationship breaks down. It helps to avoid acrimony in the event of a breakdown. You know, this is often a very emotional time for people, particularly if there's children involved, uh, it's a longer marriage, etc. And so it's helpful to have a guideline, if you will, or post as to what uh, folks should do or what their plan is, if you will, uh, when the marriage breaks down. Now, I can't get into all the bases as to why a court uh, still reserves the right uh, to set aside or vary an agreement. They, mm-hmm. they can, but it's on a very limited basis. But frankly, it's a good plan. Uh, Blair, you said, gee, at the end of the relationship isn't a good time, and you're right. But there's no absolute rule about when to enter into the agreement. You could, for example, be in a cohabitation or, for that matter, a marriage, and at some point decide you're going to enter into the agreement. The key is uh, whether or not you have the appropriate information, whether it's uh, drafted appropriately, whether you understand all the terms, and whether, in fact, you've had uh, legal advice on the agreement uh, in order to render the agreement uh, binding or essentially more binding than if you were to just sit down with your partner and write something down off the top of your head. Now, Frida, I'm just, I'm sorry, we're just running out of time. Um, Such good information and good advice. I want to just remind uh, the listener that Frida Tromans is uh, one of two principals at the Peninsula Law Group in South Surrey. Easy to find. I know you've got a website. Thank you so much for joining us today on Dollars and Cents, Frida. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you, Blair. Thank you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Tony Perdigao on the line with us. Tony's a a longtime realtor in Surrey. Uh, He's got a passion for it, started at a very early age, and uh, he's got loads and loads of business experience as well as an entrepreneur, as well as being a mortgage broker. And my gosh, Tony, talking about real estate, especially in Surrey or the lower mainland in general, couldn't be more of a hotter topic, right? 
Well, exactly. It's uh, it's on everybody's lips. Uh, no one can stop talking about it. Pretty much wherever you go, everybody wants to wants to talk about real estate. Oh, yeah, it's news, weather, and real estate seems to be the lower mainland, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, now, Tony. So, a lot of the clients that that I deal with, they come in. You know, a lot of them they're they're holding real estate. They want to hold on to their house. Um, and one of the key things there um, is, you know, they haven't bought more house than they can afford. But I wonder, right. even you know, just even before they're getting to the point of that transaction, what are the considerations when you're selecting a realtor? How do you know you've got the right realtor and somebody you're going to work well with, who's going to help you make a transaction that is financially um, the right transaction? for you right and because in bc you know there's over twenty thousand realtors so it uh it becomes finding that needle in the haystack almost for most uh for a lot of people Twenty thousand, wow <laughs> i know yeah. i know uh and i think one of the first things that people have to do is is ask the question of the realtor you know is this part-time for you or are you full-time hmm. because there are a lot of part-time realtors so you want to make sure you're getting someone who is in the market every day and it's it's their job right uh that they're not going to a different job and then this is a side job for them because we're all we're all different uh, as agents right our knowledge skills uh the strategy we bring and attitude along with our experience you know makes us who we are uh and i think that a lot of people they have to make sure that they're real through their professional right and you can tell if they're organized they're punctual when, when you set an appointment or if you want to meet with this with this individual uh, and also, if they're well-versed in the current market condition, right? Uh, I tell people, you know, Google me. Uh, go to my website. Go to my Facebook page. Uh, read my reviews. Uh, ask me for a reference. Uh, any, any realtor that's been in, in the business for, for a number of years will have clients that will want to appraise them and, and, and help them get more business just because they had a great experience with you, right? So most realtors should have a list of people that they can forward and say, hey, yeah, give this person a call. Ask them what they thought of me and how I provided them with my service. It it seems like such an obvious answer, too, you know, having a good website and being accessible. But man, oh, man, Tony, I can tell you how many times I've seen a piece of property that I'm curious about, not interested, but curious about. And then I go to the website and my gosh, it's just the worst website ever. Or I can't actually find um, the right website or the realtor's website or they don't have one. It's such an important piece today, especially today, more than ever. Ever, uh, is having a really good website and being uh, being accessible or being e- easy to access. Well, I completely agree. Um, you know, you don't want some, some dated uh, website out there that's hard to navigate. That's probably the, the worst thing that you can have is one of those types of, of real estate websites uh, because you want things to be easy for, for, the, for the consumer potential client, right? Um, so you have to evolve. As a realtor, you can't be set in your ways and not willing to, to spend that money on the marketing side of things to make it easy for your potential clients. One, to find what they're looking for right away, and two, to find information about you so that at least they can get an, a glimpse of to what uh, you're all about before they make that call. So, so, Tony, a lot of clients that, that I deal with, and, you know, they're coming out of a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, and, you know, they want to rebuild their credit with the idea of hopefully owning real estate at, at some point. Um, but, you know, usually the second half of that sentence is, but, oh, my God, I know it's so hopeless as I think about the, the lower mainland, I'll never afford a house. What do you say to people who feel very discouraged when they're, they're looking at the market and feel like they'll never afford, you know, the, the property or the place to live that they would really love? You know, the... 
the best thing I can tell them, you know, and this is one of those conversations that we're having more and more, uh, especially with first-time buyers, because real estate is such a hot topic, like we mentioned before here in the Lower Mainland. Um, a lot of people automatically assume they will not be able to afford a home and have to rent for the rest of their lives. But most, you know, and, and as you've probably seen with some of the clients that you have, they don't realize that for the same amount that they're paying in rent, they could own their own home, right? So uh, my advice is to speak with a professional, such as yourself, and they have to know where they stand financially, right? That should always be their first step. Um, because once you know where you stand, you can, you can negotiate from a, a more of a, a position of power because you know where you are. Uh, so I would, I would really tell them to, to, you know, have a great idea of your financial uh, situation, not to get discouraged by what everyone else is saying, just because you might not afford that five-bedroom, four-bathroom house that's one-point-something million or $2 million. There are other options for you that you can start in and start building equity to get into the market. Tony, how do you balance uh, the two concepts of having access to money, so credit or mortgage or, or the down payment money, like money in your bank ready to be, uh, ready to be used when needed? How do you balance those two things? Because I would think, I mean, they're so different, right, especially for a first-time buyer. Well, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but it is all about budgeting. Right, um, you do need to to stick within your your budget, and um, with the down payment, um, it's hard or it's easy, I should say, that you see all all that money in your account, and you know you think, okay, I'm I'm going to go and and I'm going to go travel, or I'm going to do this. I have the money, and then when it comes down to it, you know your your, your down payment is going away. Um, but you know it's 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 more about managing what you can realistically afford and where staying within your means to be able to to keep that down payment for your home. Is that, am I answering your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about, because, you know, everybody's in a different situation. I'm just wondering which is the best one to be in, having access to the money or having the money in the bank. But no, it's good. Yeah. Oh, okay. Can I, can I uh, expand on that then? Sure. Well, well, um, you know, you want a bit of both, right? You want to be able to have your down payment accessible. And for most most uh, people here, you need minimum 5% down up to a purchase of $500,000. Um, but also good credit and access to, to funds is, is equally important because when you have lower down payment, you want to make sure that you have great credit and that your debt servicing is going to come into play with the lender and that you're able to get the funds that you need to buy the home that you want. Yeah. No, totally good. Totally okay. good. Thanks, Great. Tony. No yeah, I think, Tony, just, just one more question for, from me is, you know, if you've made the purchase, you're very happy. And, you know, sometimes you get the statement of adjustments and suddenly there's a lot more cost than you had had thought about. Can you give someone, you know, perhaps a first time buyer a sense of what else is there in addition to the purchase cost that they really need to consider um, in terms of the overall cost of, of getting that home? Oh, of course. And it's a great question because a lot of people, they, they just assume it's a purchase price and great. These are my mortgage payments and I'm into my house, right? Um, but a lot of the times, one of the most important things is the home inspection as mm-hmm. well, right? So when you're looking for a house, you want to make sure that you have it inspected. Generally, just to find out what condition you're in and what you're going to get yourself into so you can plan if there are repairs that need to be done. Right. So home inspections, they usually start about $450 and they go up from there. Uh, another cost you'll have is 
Um, if you are getting a loan or a mortgage on it, your lender will require you to get an appraisal mm-hmm. um, just to validify the amount that you're asking for. And those usually start about $250, $300 for the appraisal. Uh, certain lenders have an automated value model, which um, if the purchase price meets their model, then it's just $150 administration fee that they charge. Um, that being said, uh, we also have the property transfer tax, and a lot of people forget about the property transfer tax, and that's probably the biggest extent. But for first-time buyers, uh, and that's one of the key factors in the, in the market today, and that's what's driving the market, is because the first-time buyers are exempt from paying that property transfer tax. And it's up to, they get the exemption up to $475,000, right? right? Uh, so that's, that could be a huge savings for someone, um, especially when they have to show a certain amount for closing costs such as these legal fees, home inspection, the appraisal. Um, you know, if it's brand new, you have to pay the GST on it. Some people don't realize that as well. And then other costs like home insurance, right? You need to get home insurance. And for Strata, you, I think that this is a, especially a, um, a, an important part for first-time buyers is because sometimes they think, oh, uh, the Strata, they have insurance. But you don't have insurance for your... Um, larger deductibles like earthquake insurance or things like that nature that are about $7,500. Mm-hmm. So you have to make sure that you go get insurance that covers these large deductibles so then you're not out of pocket later. Right. Uh, speaking, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and also CMHC sometimes too, right? Exactly. Then that yeah. was my next point. So uh, for anything that you have 20% down, you have to pay you know, mortgage insurance or like you said, commonly referred to as a CMHC fee. Right, which is applicable to anything under 20%. And so a lot of people will ask me, Tony, you know, do I have to pay that separate? I said, well, you do, but not up front. You do have that possibility. Actually, CMHC does allow you to pay it up front, but you, if you have that money, you're going to put it towards your down payment, not the paying off a, a fee that the lender requires you to pay. And it's on behalf of the lender. It's not on behalf of the consumer. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that as well. Um, and then, you know, for... Detached homes, some lenders will require a property survey. Uh, that can cost you anywhere from $750 to $1,000. And property tax adjustments or interest adjustments. And those happen where, uh, depending on the date of the sale, you will either have to reimburse the seller for their portion of the taxes. So if you're completing in May, you're actually going to have to reimburse the, the seller from January 1st to May of that date. Such good information, Tony. For more information from Tony, easy to access. He's, I bet he's got a dynamite website set up. The address is www.tonysoldit.ca. His name is Tony Perdigo. Thank you, Tony, so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Anytime. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for more information. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.